Well, good morning. I met several of you as I came in, but for those that do not know me yet, my name is Kelly Hudlow. I am a deacon here in the diocese based in Birmingham, specifically at Trinity Commons, our Episcopal Campus Ministry Center in Birmingham that serves three uh, colleges there in the city, Birmingham Southern, Samford University, and UAB. We have our services at six o'clock in the evening, and things get a little slower during the summer, as you might imagine, with a college center, and so that frees me up on Sunday mornings to, to come around and, and be with different folks, and I am very happy to be with you all here this morning. I'm going to beg your indulgence because I'm going to be a little bit nerdy for a second because I love the Gospel of John. It's my favorite of the four Gospels. Probably because it happens to be particularly unique. It's not just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It doesn't have all the parables that the other Gospels do. And it doesn't have the same action that the other Gospels have, but what it lacks in those areas, it makes up for in beautiful language and symbols that have become so comforting to Christians throughout the ages. Jesus as the bread of life, the symbols and images of water and light and life coming into the world. John is a bit different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the three synoptic Gospels, Jesus' public ministry is squeezed into one year, and most of it takes place in the Galilee, with Jesus only coming to Jerusalem one time. But in John, Jesus gets a full three years of ministry, and a lot of that is spent in and around the city of Jerusalem. It's not just the textual differences in John that make it different from the others. We treat it differently. In our revised common lectionary, right, the cycle of readings that we have for each Sunday, each of the synoptics gets its own year. For those following along at home, this year you'll see Luke gets the spotlight. And so particularly as we go into the summer months, you're going to get these long passages from the Gospel of Luke. Whereas the fourth Gospel, as it is known, just gets kind of sprinkled in to fill in the gaps, so to speak. Now, some of that is because John is hard to read aloud. It is dense and complex language. Some of it is because John has very divisive language about the Jews in the gospel. But John isn't relegated to some sort of second-class status when we look to see when we choose to fill in those gaps with John. We read the Gospel of John's beautiful prologue at Christmas. We read the Gospel of John all throughout the season of Lent and Holy Week and through the great 50 days of Easter. The reading for the principal service on Easter Sunday is John's resurrection story. We don't just push that weird fourth gospel off to the side. Instead, it shows up at the critical and foundational moments in our life of faith as the people that follow Jesus Christ. And those 
feasts and seasons that define who we are as Christians, the incarnation, the resurrection, doesn't make John any easier to read, if you maybe noticed as I tried to read through the parenthetical phrases this morning. It's filled with theology and Christology and a bunch of other ologies, which are $25 seminarian words. Its language is complex. It sometimes can leave us sitting like we're in the dark and can't quite figure out what's going on. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke are action movies, then the Gospel of John is a Shakespearean play. Its language being dense and complex. But once you hear it and unpack it, oh, the scenes that you see. It makes sense that John's language is difficult because John's Gospel is about words and more specifically about the word. The word of God that became incarnate as Jesus Christ. John's gospel typically is divided into two parts. The first half is called the book of signs. We get wonderful scenes like the miracle at the wedding of Cana and the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus. We don't get those in the other gospels. Then the second half is called the book of glory, which takes us into the upper room and through Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. That's where we are in our reading for today. We're at the very end of Jesus' public ministry. Following these words, he is going to go out into the night to face betrayal. The scene is the upper room. The characters are Jesus and his disciples gathered there. In the Gospel of John, there is no Last Supper, as we hear it in the other Gospels. Instead, Jesus' last moments with his disciple are spent washing their feet as a sign of what leadership should look like and teaching them in the words of, I give you a new commandment, that you should have love for one another. If we were reading this Gospel from a red-letter edition Bible, we would see that this passage closes out almost four chapters of nothing but Jesus talking. And today we get not just Jesus talking, but we get the very end of Jesus' final prayer with and for his disciples. We get a passage from chapter 17 each year on the seventh Sunday of Easter. We break this prayer up into three parts. And this year, year C, we get the very last of it. If we look back at the total of the prayer, we see a pattern. Jesus begins his prayer by praying for himself. He is, after all, about to be betrayed and put on trial. And he prays, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. And then in the next section, he moves to pray for the disciples that are there in that room, in that confusion and uncertainty, and prays to his father, I have made your name known to those who you gave me. Holy Father, protect them so that they may be one as we are one. And then we have today's reading where Jesus prays not for himself and not for the believers that are there in front of him, but he prays for the believers that will come after them, saying, I ask not only on behalf of these here with me now, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. 
In this powerful moment, on the edge of darkness and betrayal, Jesus, in front of his disciples and out loud, prays these words. Jesus' prayer in that moment is for us to believe. Believing being more than just some sort of intellectual exercise of accepting the rational basis for what is presented to us, but believing meaning that we recognize that Jesus was sent by God and that we experience that in a way that leads to transformation in our lives. Our call to belief that Jesus prays for is the beginning of the work of our evangelism. If we believe, then we should be transformed. Believing in Jesus and living faithfully isn't about being personally a good person, but is instead to live a life so radically transformed by the experience of the living Christ that other people want to live that way too. Jesus also prays for our oneness. This unity is probably the hardest for us to ever see. The Christian church is fractured into denominations, and even within those traditions, we divide ourselves even more. If we look out into our world, we see how we are so very comfortable in separating sheep from goats, in from out, right people from wrong people. But thank God our unity comes not from our human plans and associations and politicking, Our unity comes from the oneness of the very God that we worship. As part of that believing, transformed life that Jesus prays for, we're called to experience the fact that we are accepted by God right now, no exceptions. God gathers us up and accepts us for transformation in our brokenness and sinfulness and imperfection. God doesn't say, first you got to go get your stuff together, get yourself right. God just says, come now. And once we believe and experience as a reality God's acceptance of us, We're called to accept other people that same way, not with qualification or condition, but to accept them in their brokenness and imperfection, not because we're so good, but because God's so good. Jesus also, in this final part of his prayer, prays for love. Oh boy, does he pray for love. In six verses, he prays for love five times. Love is the bond between God the Father and God the Son. Love is the God-given gift to the disciples gathered in that room. Love is what will attract the world to belief and transformation. And love is what Jesus prays for will be found inside his followers. But before we open a Coca-Cola and start singing what the world needs now is love, sweet love, we should remember that this is not the sort of hallmark greeting card kind of love. 
It's a love that finds its greatest expression on the cross. To understand the love that Jesus is praying for, we have to view it through the crucifixion. It's self-giving, self-sacrificing. It's the kind of love that brings about resurrection and new life. It is a love that is absolutely stronger than death. This love, so strong, is what fills Jesus as he prepares to go to his betrayal and death. It is a love so strong that in that moment on the edge of emptiness and pain that Jesus stops and prays for the future. Jesus, in this last passage of his high priestly prayer, is praying not for some unnamed, unseen future believers, but he is praying for you and for me and for us and for all of us gathered on a Sunday morning to worship. You have been brought here because of a long line of people that came before you that believed and experienced transformation in Jesus Christ and you bumped up against that transformation and got invited along to join with the disciples and saints and martyrs and friends and family. This morning we get to hear Jesus pray for us. Pray for us to believe to be one, to love radically and openly, and to be where he is. And if we were to go there, if we were to go where Jesus is, to see Jesus' full glory, we must see, believe, and experience the kind of love of God that lets itself be nailed to a cross. In the Gospel of John, there is no Lord's Prayer There's no moment where Jesus says, when you pray, you should pray like this. But in this moment where Jesus prays out loud in front of disciples and future generations of believers, we learn a pattern of prayer, a pattern that begins to pray for ourselves, to offer us up not to our own glory, but to God's glory to pray for those around us that we love and care about, that they may be protected and may join in the work of transformation. And it's the type of prayer that is bold and hopeful enough to pray for the future generations that will come after us and that will know and believe in the risen Christ because of the life we lived. Jesus' prayer for us may seem impossible, And if we were left to our own power and capacity for love and hope and belief and unity, it absolutely would be impossible. But, my friends, we are not alone. We are empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit and lifted up in prayer by those that have gone before us and by Jesus Christ himself. And with that power, we can change the world. Amen.